Good morning. It's good to be with you today. My name is Ben Wilson, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, I've been at EBF for about four and a half years. I was an elder here for a little while, you may recall that. And uh, I teach at Moody Bible Institute, and uh, it's my privilege for the next several weeks to be preaching um, for this Advent season. We talked about different things that we might be able to do, but Selfishly, uh, I just love Philippians chapter 3 and Philippians chapter 4 and never had the chance to really work through those texts on my own. And so I said, you know, I, we could talk about the birth of Jesus texts and things like that, but I actually think the themes in Philippians and the second half of Philippians in particular are really relevant and timely for us as a church. And they also resonate with a lot of the traditional themes of Advent. And so that's where we're going to be these next four or five weeks, okay? Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the sermon. Father, prepare our hearts for your word. We come this morning um, out of a holiday celebration with Thanksgiving. Perhaps there were a lot of uh, joyful moments, maybe a lot of stressful moments, a lot of things going on, many interactions. Even getting here this morning, perhaps... Uh, Many of us were busy and occupied with all kinds of distractions. Lord, would those distractions fade away that today we would hear your voice and be transformed in the encounter with you in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What should be our reaction to opposition towards the church? When we encounter hostility, how should we think about it? When you're singled out, you're excluded. When you walk into a classroom or a meeting room or the courtroom and you're expected to leave your convictions at the door, what should be your mindset in those moments? How should we respond to the opposition that comes against the faith? It seems like a timely question to ask for us here now in Evanston and Northwestern and District 65, right? Now, we're not being martyred for our faith. I'm not sure you could even count what we experience as persecution, really. You know, I mean, there are a lot of Christians around the world who would give anything to experience the kind of religious freedom that we enjoy, but still, I think anyone paying attention can recognize that there are very much forces at work around us that are very much opposed to the historic Orthodox Christian faith. What should be our mindset as we think about that opposition? Of course, we're not the first people, the first Christians, to think about that kind of question. Hostility to the faith is as old as the faith itself. And the literature that deals with it and grapples with that concept of opposition is rich and immense. I mean, even if we were to just limit ourselves to things that Christians have written from prison cells, we'd have a lot of material to work with, right? Martin Luther King Jr., Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many giants of the Christian faith throughout church history have had the occasion to reflect on opposition as they sat in a prison cell and they wrote their letters. And of course, the original prison letters, maybe the best, were written by the Apostle Paul. And we've been looking at one of those letters, the letter of Philippians, these uh, last few weeks as we've been here at EBF. And uh, Philippians is a letter that Paul is writing from a prison cell as he waits for a trial before the Roman authorities. And both the author and the audience of Philippian, Philippians are people who have experienced and are experiencing opposition to their faith. Paul's in prison because of his proclamation of the gospel 
And the Philippian church apparently was experiencing some similar kinds of opposition themselves, uh, apparently from the same sorts of people that were causing so much trouble for Paul. There were these Jewish opponents of the church that wanted to do nothing more than to stop Paul and the work he was doing. And apparently some of those same sorts of people were also giving some opposition and hostility towards the church in Philippi. And so one of the reasons Paul writes Philippians is to encourage that persecuted church and to give them some counsel about how they ought to think about, how they ought to respond and react to the opposition that they're facing. And so today we're coming to chapter 3 of Philippians, and that's really where Paul turns and takes on this issue of opposition directly. How should these Philippians think about the opposition, the hostility that they're experiencing in their context? What should be their mindset as they encounter that opposition? Paul's going to give us an answer to that in Philippians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles and uh, you haven't turned there already, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. And let's see what Paul has to say to this church that's experiencing opposition in Philippi. Um, Philippians chapter 3. It comes right after Ephesians, right before Colossians. My friend always used to say, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So that's how I've remembered it, all right? Uh, well, how should the Philippian church respond to opposition? Well, I started studying this passage this week, and I got to say, it was so much fun to work through this text. I, I would put Philippians 3 on the same level of chapters like Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 13 as just some of the richest material in all of Paul's letters. And, uh, and the whole chapter really, it, it, it holds together as a single unit of thought. It's really a natural unit of scripture. So I realized as we were sitting there listening to it be read that that felt like a lot of text. Uh, but what I want to do today is just walk our way through Paul's flow of thought in this passage and go all the way through, all the way to chapter 4, verse 3. That whole unit stands together uh, as one cohesive uh, unit of discourse. And I want us to walk through it try to get inside the mind of Paul as he was speaking through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to these Philippian Christians and try to understand what it is that he had to say about the opposition that they were encountering. And I think that if we can understand what Paul was saying and why he was saying it, it's going to be a really encouraging thing for us today living as Christians in Evanston in the 21st century. Okay, so let's start walking through uh, this passage and try to trace Paul's flow of thought through the text. How should the Philippians respond to opposition? Well, Paul starts by giving a command that might seem kind of counterintuitive. To these Christians who are facing hostility from people around them, he tells them to rejoice in the Lord, to be glad, to be joyful people. Read verse 1 with me here. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Rejoice in the Lord. That's actually kind of a refrain throughout the book of Philippians. Uh, chapter 1, Paul rejoices in the Lord because the gospel's being proclaimed, even as he's sitting in prison. Chapter 2, verse 18, Paul exhorts the Philippians, be glad and rejoice with me. Our text here, chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then chapter 4, verse 4, he's going to say it again. In fact, he's going to say it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
I'll say it again, rejoice. So it's a refrain that goes throughout the book of Philippians. And each time that Paul commands or gives the exhortation to rejoice, he gives a different reason for why the Philippians should be rejoicing. And, uh, you know, typically... Uh, the idea is that the Philippians should rejoice in spite of the hostility that they're facing. So they should rejoice in the Lord in spite of their hostility because the gospel's still being proclaimed. They should rejoice in the Lord in spite of their hostility because they know that the Lord is near. So they can look at the bigger picture, and in light of that bigger picture, they re can rejoice in the Lord in spite of their hostility. But here in chapter 3, Paul's going to do something a little bit different. He's going to tell the Philippians to take a good, hard look right at their opposition and to rejoice as they do that. It's not merely that they can rejoice in spite of the hostility. It's that Paul wants them to see that the opposition they face itself is an opportunity to rejoice. Look at what Paul says in this text. Rejoice in the Lord, and then read verse 2 with me. If you have the ESV, it says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I love the ESV. Our English Bible translations are great. They're usually really, really accurate. But the ESV gets it a little bit off here. It almost sounds like it's a warning, right? Look out. Watch out. There's something for you to be afraid of. But the Greek construction here uh, occurs a lot of times in the, in the New Testament and throughout the Bible, and this is never given as a warning anywhere else in Scripture. That, that verb does not mean look out, like there's something to be afraid of. It means simply to look at, to see, to notice. Paul's not warning the Philippians to watch out like they've got something to fear. He's telling them to take a good, hard look at their opposition. Paul wants these Philippian Christians to take notice of these people who are resisting them and opposing them. He wants them to see their opponents for what they really are. These dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. And I know those words are definitely not politically correct names for calling somebody else, but when you look at those words and you dig into them a little bit, Paul's choice of words here is very carefully chosen. Uh, dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, each one of those words actually starts with the K sound in Greek. And so Paul's using some alliteration here. He's getting a little poetic with his put-downs. We might tweak it and say, uh, take a look at these dogs, these doers of evil, these destroyers of the flesh. It's kind of a poetic way of speaking about these people. And when you look at those words, uh, what Paul's doing is really clever here. One of the most common ways for Jews in the first century to refer to Gentiles was as dogs. In fact, uh, if you uh, remember the Gospels in, in Mark chapter 7, uh, even Jesus himself, a first century Jew, referred to Gentiles as dogs in his conversation with the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, so Paul has taken that image and he's turning it on his head and now he's looking at these Jewish opponents to a predominantly Gentile church and he's calling them the dogs. Or that word for mutilators, it's also pretty interesting. It rhymes with the word for circumcision. Uh, and, and so Paul is, is uh, as you look in verse 3, the very next verse, Paul sees circumcision as a, a true circumcision, as a matter of the heart, not the foreskin. And so he can look at these Jewish opponents of the church who are advocating for a physical circumcision, 
And that's just a mutilation of the flesh. These Gentile Christians who believe in Christ, they're the real circumcision. So Paul's put-downs here in, chapter, uh, in verse 2 are not uh, politically correct, but they are really clever. And what Paul wants the Philippian church to do is really take a good look at their opponents. See these people, see the opposition that they're facing for what it really is. You know, uh, I am not an outdoors person. I'll just be honest about that. Uh, but from time to time, about once a decade, unfortunate circumstances arise whereby I find myself sleeping outside in a tent. And uh, one time, uh, my wife Rachel and I, we were out camping in the wilderness. It was on the fringe of civilization in Orange County, California. And uh, we were in a tent. It was dark and quiet. We had just started going to sleep. And all of a sudden, we hear this loud noise, leaves rustling, branches cracking. It didn't sound like a human, so I knew it wasn't an axe murderer. But my heart started to race, you know? Is that a wild dog, a mountain lion, a small bear? The noise wasn't going away. It was pretty loud. I was scared. I grabbed my s'more stick, you know, for protection, <laughs> pulled back the door of the tent, tried to check out what was going on out there. Turns out it was a bunny, right? It's just a bunny rabbit. But sometimes we can make our opposition out to be a whole lot more formidable than it really is, right? When you're not really looking, you can mistake bunnies for bears, molehills for mountains. And so Paul tells this uh, Philippian church, hey, take a good look at your opposition. You know, don't be intimidated, don't panic, take a look at these people. Think about what they're claiming. Look at the substance of what they actually have to say. Just look at them. Paul wants them to get a good look at their opposition. Now, I went to college at the University of Oklahoma, and then I went to grad school at the University of Cambridge in the UK. And, you know, in either of those places, there were plenty of people that were pretty dismissive of the Christian faith. Kind of like, you know, maybe a lot of people here in Northwestern, right? And uh, they could be pretty vocal about it. And there were times when I would feel kind of intimidated by it. Uh, but then I would do what Paul's talking about here in this passage. I'd, I'd really take a look at the substance of what people were saying. And, you know, it's interesting. What I found out, what I came to realize was a lot of times these opponents of Christianity don't actually know what they're talking about. They don't really understand the faith that they're criticizing. They're criticizing a belief system that they don't actually know. Sure, they're intelligent people. They have credentials. They use big words. They talk with a lot of confidence. But when you pull back the curtain and you actually look at the substance of what they're saying on this issue, a lot of times they don't really know what they're talking about. They've, they really don't understand much about the Bible. It's not something they've actually spent the time to get to know. They're not bears. They're bunnies. And a lot of times, the ones that talk the loudest are the least informed. Don't be intimidated by them. You don't need to be scared. Don't panic. Paul says, take a good look at the opposition. See it for what it really is. Well, what was the opposition in Philippi? What was the shape that opposition took for this church in the first century there in Philippi? From what we know of the historical context, these were Jewish opponents of the church. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. 
They thought that the path to God was through the law of Moses in the Old Testament. And apparently, these were people who were kind of doing some evangelism towards the church in that setting. And they were trying to convince people and tell them, hey, if you want to be a part of the people of God, you need to get circumcised, you need to obey the food laws, you need to pursue a righteousness in the law through Moses and apart from Jesus Christ. And Paul wants the Philippians to hold on just a second and think about what these people are saying. Examine the opposition. Is there anything to it? If they took a good look at these people, would they have anything to really be concerned about? Well, if anybody on the face of the earth was qualified to answer that sort of question from his own experience, it was the Apostle Paul, right? Paul himself was exactly what these opponents are prior to his conversion to Christ, right? If anybody could speak to the opposition, well, it would be Paul. He was a persecutor of the church, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He pursued righteousness in the law as well as a person could do that. He's been as far down that road as anybody could go. He has lived the life that these Jewish opponents of the church are advocating and living out and trying to press on the Philippians. And so as the passage goes on here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is going to point to his own example. He's going to remind the Philippians of his background. He's going to tell them his story. And he's doing that because it's a way of him helping his church here in Philippi get a good, long look at their opposition. After all, the opposition is exactly what Paul used to be. Uh, read with me in verse 3 here. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And I picture Paul here, he's kind of like, do I need to keep going? Should I just keep talking? I could do this all day. Paul has an impressive resume. His credentials are spotless from the vantage point of these first century Jewish opponents of the church. And it's kind of cool here. Paul lists seven credentials, uh, reasons for confidence in the flesh in verses 5 and 6. And he provides them as a list that, that matches the form, the style of a CV or a resume in Greco-Roman society. You know, so in Philippi in the first century, of course, they didn't have LinkedIn profiles. There was no such thing as a social media influencer. Uh, but people did still find ways to boast about their status and let people know about their credentials. And so if you were in Philippi and you walked the streets of that city, all around you, on the walls of public buildings, on public monuments, as he looked at tombstones, you would have seen inscriptions that were the equivalent of a LinkedIn profile where people would be boasting about their credentials for other people to see. And the way those things would start out is with some description of the honors that ought to be given to a person on account of their birth and their lineage, their ancestry. And then they would list the things that they've accomplished that they ought to be honored for. And Paul here, in his list in verses 5 and 6, follows that same exact pattern. He starts with the things that ought to be honors ascribed to him on account of his birth. Circumcised of the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews. And then he moves from there to some of the things that he's accomplished that he ought to be honored for. Uh, as to... The law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, 
blameless. And what he's doing is giving a resume that any of these Jewish opponents of the church in Philippi would have envied. Paul has all the reason in the world to have confidence in the flesh. He's got plenty of reason for boasting. His credentials are impressive. He's gone as far down the road that these Jewish opponents of the church are advocating as anybody could go. But whatever value those credentials once had at one point in time in Paul's life, now that he knows Christ, they're worthless. They don't mean anything. They can't measure up to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. Look at how Paul talks about it in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that God, that Uh, comes from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. Like an athlete, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, well, God will reveal that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Confidence in the flesh through circumcision. Righteousness that comes through obeying the law. All these things that the Jewish opponents of the church were pressing on, these Philippian Christians, they can't measure up to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. They don't measure up to what really matters in life. The things that are really valuable, gaining Christ, being found righteous in Him through faith, experiencing His power, being united with Him in His death and His resurrection, putting your hope and salvation in Him. That's what Paul wants in life. That's what he's devoting all of his focus and energy and strength toward. He knows Christ and he wants to know him more. And compared to that, all this other stuff that these Jewish opponents of the church are peddling is worthless. In fact, it's rubbish there in verse 8. And that's probably a pretty light, uh, polite translation. The word there is actually feces, excrement, a big steaming pile of poop. Something that stings your nostrils, makes you sick. See, what Paul is telling the Philippian Christians here, it's kind of like he's stepping back and saying, hey, take it from me. I have lived the life that these Jewish opponents of the church are living. I've been as far down that road as a person could go. And Paul's saying, you know what? Quite literally, it stinks. It doesn't measure up to what you have in Christ. Knowing him, being found in him, and trying to know him more, that's the life you have, and it's the only life worth living. So take a good, hard look at your opposition and rejoice, because you'll see that you have something far greater than what they have. See, Paul's example here in this text is proof for the Philippians that what they have in Christ is far greater than 
what the opposition can offer. Knowing Christ, being found in him, that's what really matters and that's what they have. And so they can take a hard look at their opposition through the example of Paul and they can realize, oh, we don't need to get all bent out of shape. We're experiencing some hostility. Okay, well, we have something far greater. And so Paul then turns as the passage goes on and he appeals to his example and says, hey, if you know my story, you know my background, then follow my example. If Paul the fiercest opponent of the church, this guy who walked as far down that road as a person could go, if even that kind of person is now living his life for Christ and placing everything in him, then surely the Philippians should follow his example, tune out the opposition, keep walking with Christ. Look at how Paul uh, exhorts them in verse 17 here. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Brothers, imitate me. Follow my example. Paul's story is an example that the Philippians should take courage from and be inspired by and follow so that they can stand firm in their faith, even in the midst of this hostility that they're facing. And notice in the text, I think this is really important, that as Paul talks about uh, the opposition in these verses, and he looks at the situation in Philippi, it's something that breaks his heart. It breaks Paul's heart that these Jewish opponents of the church have rejected Jesus as the Messiah and that they've fallen into a sort of idolatry where they've taken good things that God has given, things like circumcision and the food laws from the Old Testament, and they've turned them into idols. Their God is their belly. It's talking about the food laws, right? They glory in their shame, the circumcision piece of things. And it breaks Paul's heart. Verse 18, he talks about it with tears. And so here in this passage, as Paul exhorts us, hey, take a good look at your opposition and rejoice as you're doing that. The idea, I don't want you to hear me saying, the idea is not that we would look at our opposition and we rejoice because of their spiritual blindness and the fact that they're destined for destruction. This isn't some kind of sadistic rejoicing where we're looking at the lost state of unbelievers and that in and of itself is what we're rejoicing in. No, the idea instead is that Paul sees this as an opportunity when we look at the opposition and the destruction they're going to experience. Uh, it soberly causes us to reflect on who we really are and what we really have in Christ, that our citizenship is in heaven and that from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who's going to transform us in glory when he returns. See, we have an identity and a destiny that can't be touched by the hostility that we might experience. And that's why we rejoice. And so Paul here in the text wants them to look at the opposition and use it as an opportunity 
for being grounded and rooted in their own identity and destiny in Christ. And so look at the exhortation, the specific directions he gives then at the very end of the passage, the last three verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Read with me. In light of their identity and their destiny in Christ, since they've been uh, uh, made citizens in heaven, since their opponents are destined for destruction, since they're going to be transformed in glory at Christ's return, what should they do? Well, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. See, in light of their identity and their destiny in Christ, in light of their citizenship in heaven, the glory that they'll one day experience, Paul exhorts them, hey, stand firm right now in the midst of the opposition. Work out your differences and seek unity with each other. Now, we don't know much about these women, Yodia and Syndiki. Uh, what we know about them is just what we have here in this verse. Apparently, these were two Christian women. They had some kind of dispute between themselves, and Paul wants them to work it out. But we do know from a verse like this and from other places in the book of Philippians that Apparently, the pressure of hostility, the pressure of opposition there in Philippi was starting to cause some relational friction in the church, you know. A lot of times, pressure from the outside can start causing division on the inside, and that's what was going on in Philippi. And Paul wants these Christians instead to be united, to recognize, hey, we're all sharing a common citizenship in heaven, we all share a common destiny, so that pressure shouldn't divide us. You know, pressure can cause a piece of glass to break into a thousand pieces, or it can press together carbon atoms into an indestructible diamond. And I think that's Paul's hope here in this passage, that the pressure that these Christians are facing and the opposition and hostility around them would be something that actually pulls the church together, presses them into each other so that they're more unified in Christ. And so when Paul looks at the situation in Philippi, he sees all kinds of opportunity in this opposition that the Christians are facing. If they'll just take a good hard look at their opposition, they'll realize they have something more valuable than anything their opponents can offer in knowing Christ, being found in him, pursuing Christ as a goal in the same way that an athlete would run toward the finish line. And as they do that, as they follow Paul's example, they can realize, hey, we have an identity and a destiny in Christ that can't be touched by this hostility that we're facing. And so the Philippians shouldn't be uh, afraid to stand firm in their faith, and they shouldn't allow the pressure from the outside to shatter and divide their community. Instead, they should rejoice because the opposition they're experiencing is really a beautiful opportunity. And that's the big idea of this passage from Philippians today to rejoice in rejection. Opposition is an opportunity. Hostility has a possibility. Doers of evil, dogs, destroyers of the flesh, they don't determine your destiny. And the somber reality and certainty of their destruction ought to be something that presses us on to remember what we have in Christ and who we really are, to remind us of our own identity and destiny in Him. Tomorrow, you're going to walk into a meeting, you're going to go into a classroom, 
I'm going to turn on the television, click on a news article, pick up a phone, and in one way or another, you're going to encounter some sort of opposition to your Christian faith. What's going to be your mindset in that moment? I'd encourage you from this passage in Philippians today to view that opposition as an opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to remember who you really are and what you really have in Christ. You're a citizen in heaven. You have something of surpassing value in Christ. You're going to be transformed one day in glory with him. And opposition is an opportunity to be reminded of that. It's also an opportunity for you to develop a heart of compassion for people who are missing out on what you have. It's the most important thing in this world, knowing Christ, making him known, getting into a more intimate relationship with him. In opposition, it's a chance for you to develop a heart of compassion for people who haven't experienced it. And then it's also an opportunity for you to seek unity with people who are experiencing the same hostility and opposition you're facing, people who share in that same identity and destiny as you that you should be unified with. So allow the hostilities in your life to be a possibility that you pursue to the utmost, embrace it as an opportunity, and you'll be able to rejoice like Paul talks about here in Philippians. Let's pray. Father, it's counterintuitive to think that we might look opposition in the eye, we might encounter hostility to our faith, and that your desire for us would be to rejoice. May we do it, Lord. May we recognize that in Christ we have something so much more precious than anything this world can offer. And so as we look at the opposition we encounter, we're not intimidated. We don't panic. Instead, we're moved with compassion and with a joy and a boldness that comes from knowing Jesus and being found in him. We know him and we want to know him more. Would you bring us to that place in our lives? In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.